Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come before you this morning and we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, Lord. As it comes to us this morning in Acts 13, uh, we just pray that you would use your word this morning, Father, that you would use it to strengthen us, to direct us as your people. Um, Lord, we just need your help. We, we are so grateful and we recognize that your spirit is here among us. And I pray that, that he would help us to see Christ in this text. Not just that we might learn more about Jesus, but that our hearts and our lives would be changed by Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me right now and take this word which we believe to be true, Lord, and we just ask that you would write it on our hearts. We ask these things in the holy, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, yesterday I took um, Noelle, our five-year-old, just for a little bike ride in the neighborhood. And um, she's not quite without training wheels yet. She's almost there. In fact, yesterday I was looking and there was most of the ride, neither one of the training wheels were really touching the ground. She's, she's ready. And if you've ever taught somebody how to ride a bike, I mean, you just, the training wheels are so helpful, but at some point you just have to take them off and just kind of let them go. They just have to sort of figure it out, right? You just have to let them sort of take control, take ownership for that bike and responsibility for whatever happens as they begin to pedal. It's not unlike a, a coach maybe who spends a lot of time preparing a team in practice, practice after practice, week after week, and then at some point it's game time and the coach can no longer interfere, stop the play, redirect, take control. At some point... That team has to step on the field and sort of take responsibility for all that they have learned. As we look at Acts chapter 13, up until this point, we've seen God directing and guiding the missionary efforts of the early church, and he has been doing so in wonderful fashion. He's, he's also been doing, thing, doing this through some really difficult things through things like persecution and divine intervention. God has been sort of pushing the church out. What we see today in today's passage, it's so exciting because it's, what we see is individuals are beginning to take responsibility themselves for the assignment. It's like the training wheels are coming off and they're beginning to pedal for themselves. They're beginning to think and act strategically without feeling that, that, that they're being sort of squeezed into a mold. God is working in the church. And while the church, under the Holy Spirit's direction, is beginning to share God's vision for worldwide evangeliz evangelization, the church, we see, is willing to set apart individuals, some of the best that they have to offer, to tell the world the story of Jesus. Now, this story in Acts 13 comes after Paul and Barnabas were sent. The Spirit directed them to go, and they went to the island of Cyprus, and they, they told the whole island, if you remember the story, the beginning of Acts chapter 13, about Jesus eventually ending up in the most prominent, influential city, had an audience of the governor himself. Then there was this amazing miracle where somebody was trying to get in the way 
was struck blind and couldn't see. And because of that, the proconsul, his eyes were opened and were told that he believed. This second story in Acts chapter 13 picks up on the heels of that. And we're told that they, they set off from Paphos, the most significant city in Cyprus, and they make their way to Antioch of Pisidia by way of Perga. Perga was in southern Asia Minor, some 112-mile journey. It would be another 100 miles inland toward Antioch. At this time, they're about 400 miles away from Jerusalem. Now, we've already read a story about the church in Antioch. This is not that Antioch. And that day, there would have been some 16-ish cities that had the name of Antioch. There was a ruler who, as he conquered land, named cities after his father, Antiochus. And so this specific Antioch is the one where it's, it's not in Pisidia, but it's looking at Pisidia. It's across the water from Pisidia. We're told in verse 13 that along the way, John Mark heads back. We don't exactly know why here in the text, but we do know that this will eventually become a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas as to whether or not Mark, John Mark, will prove himself useful later on. Now, because of the large Jewish population, Paul goes immediately into the synagogues on the Sabbath, into the synagogue. It's a similar tactic that we saw him do in Cyprus. It's a pattern that's repeated whenever he enters a town with a large Jewish population. He goes right into the synagogue. And it would have been customary in the synagogues at that time to have a reading from the Torah, from the law, and also a corresponding reading from the prophets. And what also would have been customary is for somebody to stand up in the synagogue and give an exposition, provide some sort of teaching about what the law and the prophets have to say. Oftentimes that individual would be somebody who had a tremendous amount of education or it would be somebody who was a guest, a visitor. Think back to Luke chapter four when Jesus returned to Nazareth and he walks into the, into the synagogue. And what's he asked to do? He's asked to, he stands up and he begins to comment. He gives a, a message. It's a very similar type of scene. This is the moment that Paul is expecting. This is the moment as he enters the synagogue, this is why it's so strategic, because he's he's given a platform to speak. Now, in chapter 13, we see that his audience is primarily uh, audience that are are Jewish. We're also told that they're people who fear God, so they have some, some understanding of the things of God, some interest In chapter 14 and chapter 17, his audience will not be primarily Jewish. They'll be primarily pagan. And so his approach, what we'll see, is going to be dramatically different as he speaks the gospel to a people who have no knowledge of the Bible. No matter the audience, he always wants to focus their attention. What we'll see as we examine these messages of Paul, he wants their attention to be focused on Christ. But what we see as we read his sermons is that Paul has more than one way of doing that. Sort of the big idea for the message this morning as we walk through this passage is that while there are many ways to communicate the message of Christianity, there is only one message of Christianity. While there are many ways to communicate the hope of the gospel, there's only one gospel that provides hope. A great summary of his message is found in verses 38 and 39. Hopefully you caught it when I was reading it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you 
And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. Paul finds himself in a primarily Jewish setting and his, his desire is to communicate Jesus effectively to them. Three things we'll see as we go throughout this message. The first is, let's consider together the argument that Paul makes for the Christian gospel. What is the argument? What is his approach, his strategy to communicate the message of Christianity? Paul's making an argument that his listeners should believe the Christian message. I don't know if you've thought about it before, but that's essentially what preaching is. Preaching God's word is a form of persuasion. What I'm hoping to do right now and every Sunday, what I think most preachers ought to be hoping to do every Sunday morning is to stand up and to persuade people to believe what God's word says. They're making arguments, and that's exactly what Paul is doing. What he's hoping for is as he persuades them is ultimately he desires for heart change. He, he longs to see lives transformed by the reality of the gospel. He wants them to see something. But notice that the path that Paul takes, while he wants to aim for the heart, the path he takes is through the head. He wants them to see something. It is not unlike what we saw last week with the proconsul. He saw something. He saw the hand of God at work and strike somebody blind. And the result was he believed. He, he saw something and believed and his life was transformed. Paul wants his audience likewise to see something and for the effect to be the same thing, for them to marvel, like the proconsul did, at God's word, the teaching of the Lord, and to put their trust and to believe in Jesus. His argument is primarily built, as he makes this case for Christ, his argument is primarily built on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. What is the argument? What's his angle as he stands up in the synagogue? He wants these people to see Jesus as he is, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. To go through the sermon, we're not going to be able to cover everything that's here, and you're thinking to yourself, praise God for that probably. We're not going to be able to cover it all, but just, just sort of we gloss over it. You can kind of break the sermon down into three different parts, okay? This is, first of all, probably not the entire message that Paul preached. Most likely, this is Luke's summary of what Paul said. So, so the message was probably much longer than this. Three different parts, and you get a, a sort of a flavor for what his approach is. The first part, Paul basically gives a summary of biblical history. Paul gives an incredibly concise, well-thought-out overview of the first half of the Old Testament, leading up to the promise of an everlasting king who would come from David. If you just look at it in chapter 13, he says, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That's a summary of Genesis 12 to the end of Exodus. And verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. He's already covered the book of Joshua now. All this took place in about, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges. Summary of the book of Judges. Until Samuel the prophet, summary of 1 Samuel. Paul is summarizing the Old Testament scriptures. All of this is to show that God's promised king would rule over his people, freeing them to enjoy his blessings forever. Promises given by God leading up to the coming king, Jesus himself. He's highlighting these promises in the Old Testament scripture. That's the first part of his sermon. The third part, sort of the back end of his message, he concludes with a variety of quotes from the Psalms and from the prophets. See it in verse 33. You are my son, today I begotten you. Verse 34, I will give you the holy, that's Psalm 2. Verse 34, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. And verse 35, you will not let your holy one see corruption. This is a quote from Psalm 16. It's not the first time we've heard this verse. Peter quoted it in his Pentecost sermon as well. Verse 41, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if, no, if one tells it to you. He's quoting Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. The thread connecting these quotes, once again, is the thread of kingship. Making this specific point that the Davidic king who was promised to reign was to reign eternally. The one who would come from David was to sit on a throne where he would have an everlasting rule. In the resurrection, what Paul is saying of Jesus demonstrates that he is that everlasting monarch. That Jesus is the one whose body saw no corruption, who is reigning to this day. You can obviously see there's a focus between the first half of the sermon and the back half of the sermon on that of fulfillment. The argument why they should believe the gospel of Jesus is because Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He traces through the first half of the Old Testament, showing the promises leading up to the coming of Jesus. Then at the end, he cites references to the second half of the Old Testament, proving that Jesus really was that promised king. So kind of like a sandwich. And then in the middle, the meat of the message. It wasn't enough to focus on fulfillment on the front end and the back end. Sandwiched between these first and the last part is the real meat of the sermon. And all throughout it, it's peppered with references of fulfillment. In verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Verses 24 and 25, he says that John the Baptist came declaring, I'm not the one, that, the one that was promised is another. He's coming. I've come to prepare the way for him. In verse 27, Jesus was, was rejected because Jewish rulers didn't understand the utterances of the prophets. In turn, they condemned Jesus. And when they did so, get this, they were actually fulfilling the Old Testament promises. See, what's so interesting about Paul's argument is oftentimes when people say, Jesus, if, okay, your argument's that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Well, he, he was familiar with those promises. He was aware of what they said, and he just sort of forced himself into it. Well, what Paul is saying is even when those who tried to shut him down, tried to condemn him, God orchestrated it in such a way that, that by their rejection of Jesus, 
He was fulfilling what God had ordained. Verse 29, when they carried out all of it, this was written of him in verses 32 and 33. And, and we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Jesus is the climactic point of biblical history. And he is, Paul is telling his audience, the promised hero you have been waiting for. He's here, he's come. His name is Jesus. This is the argument for the Christian message that Paul is making. The reason you should believe is because what God said he would do with the promises that you hold onto, God has fulfilled through Jesus. This is important to them, Jews, to see the Old Testament scriptures that they know, that they love, that they respect, have been fulfilled in Jesus. Like the proconsul, he wants their eyes to be wide open to the reality of who Jesus is, that he is the king. He's on the throne right now, reigning over the world. His approach to get them to believe it, look what the Old Testament says. It's important for them. It's also important for us to see Jesus as the fulfillment for a number of reasons. As we proclaim that Jesus came, died, rose again, and reigns as God's eternal king, we too should be filled with confidence. As we comb through our Bibles and look through the Old Testament and see one promise after another fulfilled in Jesus, it should embolden us that what God says he does. It should give us confidence in the faith. Jesus, by placing Jesus in the narrative of the Old Testament history and promises, it demonstrates that we have rightly understood who Jesus is. It's crucial for us as well as it was for them to see Jesus as the fulfillment. And when Jesus becomes our interpretive grid, he helps us make sense of the Old Testament. And as we read the Old Testament, he helps us, it helps us make sense of who Jesus is. It deepens our understanding of who Christ is. Now, I want you to consider the significance of his approach. Paul is mindful of who his audience is. It happens to be an audience that Paul knows well. He understands their belief system, their worldview, and more importantly, he understands their knowledge and their appreciation of scripture. And from this understanding, Paul builds an argument that hopefully, prayerfully, would resonate with some. And we see as we read through it that it does resonate with some. It's a different approach, as I said before, than what he takes in Acts chapter 14. We'll see that. And a different approach even yet from what he does when he goes to Athens and Acts chapter 17. Both of those audiences are primarily pagan. No understanding of scripture. And his argument, his, his form of persuading them to believe the gospel, his approach is different. See, what Paul is able to do, and it's a great example for us, is Paul is able to contextualize the message to his audience. 
making the gospel known in a way that's appropriate for the context. One author, when talking about contextualization, says this, in every situation, there needs to be a point of contact with the people, an understanding of their values, of their history, an understanding of communication. I mean, on some level, every time we speak the gospel, we are contextualizing it. Right now, one way I'm doing that is I'm speaking in English to primarily an English-speaking audience. There's some form of contextualization that's happening. But also, there has to be some understanding, some awareness, but there also has to be a point of conflict that reveals how their own narrative conflicts with that of the gospel. Paul is challenging them in their belief system. You don't think he's come. Your leaders have rejected him. So Paul is demonstrating a faithfulness to the gospel as he contextualizes this message, but he's also showing an effectiveness or an awareness as he communicates to the people who are there to hear. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the message, one of the things that we're doing is this bless every home, an idea to get us to know our neighbors so we can pray for them, hopefully to be able to share God's word with them. As I said before, it encourages us to bless them to, by praying for them, by caring for them, and hopefully by sharing with them. If there was one thing, one step in that process that I would say, eh, let's just add, it would be the step of learn. Pray for your neighbors. And as you care for them and share for them, share with them, you should also learn about them. Learn what they're maybe worldview is, what their belief system, their values, what their history, what their story is, what their family dynamics are like. Learn about the individuals. And as you learn, you will see windows open up where the gospel can be communicated, can be applied, can be contextualized. Because odds are the way that you care for them will probably look different from one neighbor to the next. And I would argue the way that you probably are gonna share with them will also look different. Contextualization is important. We see Paul do it all the time. Second thing, the next two points I promise are gonna be really quick, okay? Second part is that's the argument for the gospel. Secondly, let's consider the essence of the Christian gospel. What's the essence of Christianity? Well, the essence of Christianity, according to Paul in Acts 13, is Jesus. That's the essence. He is the focus of the sermon because he is the subject of our faith. And he's all throughout this message. Verse 23, Jesus is the promised king who would reign over an everlasting kingdom, who descends from the seed of David. His name is Jesus. Verses 24 and 25, John the Baptist came preaching a message in preparation for coming after him. Jesus, whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. Verse 26, Jesus is the message of salvation sent to Israel and to all those who fear God. Verse 27, this savior, Jesus, was rejected and condemned. His condemnation took the form of execution in verse 28. It was Jesus who was killed in a tree, on a tree. It was Jesus who was laid in a tomb. It was Jesus that God raised from the dead and it was Jesus' risen body who appeared to many witnesses afterwards. While David too was chosen by God and served the purposes in verse 38 and 39, we learn that it's only through Jesus, Jesus and Jesus alone, where forgiveness of sins are offered and freedom is available in a way that the law could not do. Look again 
a summary in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, and through Jesus alone, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. With Jesus, he's saying, comes forgiveness. With Jesus, forgiveness of your sins, Parkview East, is possible, but only through the work of Jesus. Notice, there's a change of pronouns that Paul uses here. He goes from to us, in verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, to, to you, in verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore. Paul is saying is this history, this history is for us, but the offer of forgiveness is to you because the audience stands outside the blessing they need to respond so that they can receive what Paul and his group already possess. You too can have forgiveness for your sins, but that forgiveness only comes through Jesus. Forgiveness and freedom. The point is that the law is totally inadequate. You want true freedom. You want complete forgiveness. The law of Moses can't offer that. Only Jesus can do that. The law's intent was to reveal your need for a savior wasn't your savior, to show how unrighteous you are. That's its purpose, to show you your need. The word used here to be set free is the word that is often translated justification or to be made right, to be declared righteous. The law could not justify you, could not make you right or righteous. This only happens in Jesus. The forgiveness that Jesus offers sets believers free from the legal obligations that sin brought against them and leads them into a relationship with God through the power of the Spirit. That's what Jesus offers. This liberation, this experience of forgiveness, the core blessings that were promised to God's people long ago. And they're reserved for everyone who believes in the person and in the work of Jesus. Some of us have been sold a bill of right goods. Sorry, not bill of rights. Some of us have been... <laughs> so if we could take that out of there, that'd be great, Robert, at some point. Some of us, some of you sitting here today have been sold a bill of goods. You've been told that the essence of Christianity comes down to, I would say, maybe two things. Either A, something you do, or like, you know, the good works, acts of service, good things, or the things you don't do, what you abstain from. And when you think of what Christianity is, you usually think in those two categories. It looks like me doing this type of stuff and staying away from this type of stuff. Oftentimes, that's what we believe Christianity, the essence of the Christian gospel is. It comes down to being good and acting right, getting our stuff together, or maybe staying busy with good stuff, or maybe voting a particular way, or maybe just being very socially active, 
Paul is incredibly clear. The essence of Christianity is Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you would identify as a Christian, but you've not engaged with Jesus, you've got a problem. You've got a problem. There's many here today who are probably passionate to make the message of the gospel known. It's fantastic. Study of Acts has stirred perhaps in you a desire to expand God's kingdom through the power of his spirit and the proclamation of his word. Yes, there are multiple ways to communicate and to proclaim the wonders of the gospel. And yes, we wanna be effective communicators as we do just that. We must learn our audience, interpret their narratives, understand their values, but we must, at the end of the day, offer them an alternative, a different narrative, a better story, one that comes with forgiveness and with freedom. At the end of the day, we must speak Jesus. That's the message of Christianity. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I have been in a hope to contextualize and to be heard, I found myself paralyzed. The message of Christianity is so revolutionary and so incredibly simple. And as a church, our job is to be faithful in proclaiming that message. There's only one. If you're here this morning and you don't, Identify as a follower of Jesus. First of all, I want to say I'm so glad that you're here. This message is for you. Freedom. In a way that the law, religion can't offer. And forgiveness of sins, no matter how grievous, no matter what your past looks like, who doesn't want in on that? The message is for you. It's extended to you. And the question for you this morning is, how will you respond? Well, point three, we see that while he builds up an argument for the gospel and, and he shows the essence of the gospel, finally, we see that there's a reaction to the Christian gospel. And it's sort of three different groups of people who respond to this message. See that the response is sort of mixed. There are those who receive the word a group that responded favorably to what Paul had to say. In fact, they, they responded so favorably that they begged them to come back the next Sabbath to continue their exposition and their teaching, to continue to wow them with the word of God. They urged them to continue in verse 43, in God's grace. They would gather the next city, the text tells us, the next Sabbath, the whole city together to hear what these individuals had to say. They go about rejoicing and glorifying, we're told, the word of the Lord. What a picture. What a picture. The word spreading, being received with joy and gladness. It's what our hearts long for. It's something that only God can do. They receive the word. If you're here today and you haven't received Jesus, don't wait any longer. Receive him. Join what he is up to as he strides throughout the universe, winning hearts of men and women around the globe. 
Secondly, there are those who rejected the word. See in verse 45, the Jews saw the crowd and immediately they were filled with jealousy. They could see that there was a risk here for them. Maybe they were gonna lose power, popularity. So they opposed the message. It's a reminder for us that as we are faithful to proclaiming the message of Jesus, not everybody will receive it with joy and gladness. So don't be surprised when, you, when not just is the message rejected, but so are you because you're faithful to it. So that they actually stirred up opposition, leading men and women in the area. And eventually persecution would cause Paul and Barnabas to leave the region. Not all will receive what we have to say with joy and gladness. Some won't stand it. And then there's a third group of people. This is super huge encouragement for me this week. Look at verse 51 and 52. There are those who received the word, those who rejected the word, and those who actually participate in continuing to spread the word. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples, we're told, are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How awesome is that? Right on the heels of a verse that says how they were persecuted and how they were rejected. Notice, the disciples don't quit. They don't back down. They're not filled with despair and loneliness, frustration and discouragement. They're filled with joy and they're accompanied by the Holy Spirit, God himself. How awesome, how amazing. Yes, they saw some fruit, but, but they were reviled, they were persecuted. And yet here they are, shaking the dust from their feet, rejoicing all the more. This, and reading this, reminds me of another promise. Maybe you're familiar with it. Matthew chapter five. Jesus in the, another famous sermon, the Beatitudes, he says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter five, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So they persecuted Jesus. The response to the persecution. This is a fulfillment of that. Can you imagine the disciples hearing it on that mountainside in Matthew chapter five, sounding crazy, rejoice and be glad in the face of persecution? And here, it's becoming a reality. As we participate with Christ, we participate not just in his new life, but also in his sufferings. And the result is the same Joy. Church, when you get in on what Jesus is doing in this world, he's changing hearts and lives and spreading his kingdom through the proclamation of his word. There is a joy that comes that is accompanied with that work that the rest of this world can't even touch and can't even understand. Let's not miss out. Let's not miss out. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And um, 
Lord, I, I just thank you as we consider Paul's approach as he proclaims the message of Christianity, the message of the gospel, Lord, and I thank you for his example um, and how central Jesus was to his message. Lord, I pray that Christ would continue to be exalted in this church and in this place and in our lives. And he would be central, not just to our message and to the words that come out of our mouths, Lord, but that, that he would be central to our life and to our hearts. Lord, increase our affection for your son. Help us to see him as he is. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.